So it's been a little while since we were in the book of Matthew, and I thought it would be helpful to remind one another where we have come, and but not to take up all our time, we would just look briefly at sort of the, the near context. So previously, at the last point that we were in Matthew, we had spoken of the parable, of, or rather the, uh, the prophetic action of Christ in cursing the fig tree and it withering and dying. But if you remember a little bit before that, all the way at the beginning of, or sorry, at the end of Matthew chapter 20, we really were beginning to see um, the cross of Christ come into sharper focus as Jesus was nearing Jerusalem and he had his face set towards that which he would undertake to redeem sinners. And if you remember uh, in, at the end of chapter 20, the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee had come and they had asked for the seats of her sons to be on the right hand and the left. And Jesus says, you don't know what, I'm gonna, what you ask, but are you, willing to, are you willing to drink the cup that I will drink? And he says, you will. You will drink it. Are you able to bear what I am to bear? And we know he is speaking here of the cross. And just before that, he had, he had told the people, he says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And so from this point on, even more than it had been up until this point, Christ is set towards Calvary. His mind is set there, and first he must come through Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that city of the people of God, that place where the holy temple was at, where King David had ruled a very symbolic place for the people. And so Jesus had come, he had healed the blind men, and then as he nears there, he sends his disciples out. They go and they take the the colt and they set Jesus upon the colt, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the people shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To the Son of David, they cry their blessings. And as he enters Jerusalem and he is ascending to that holy temple, he comes and he finds the money changers in the temple. And he's driving them out. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And so as he, as he drives them out and he purifies the temple, he is, he is in some ways um, building this crescendo. He's culminating as he lands in the temple. And between that narrative and the one which we'll come to today sits the, the um, prophetic action of Jesus and the cursing of the fig tree. Now the Gospel of Luke puts those two things directly together. That is, he enters the temple, he's driving the money changers out, and the Pharisees come to confront him. But Matthew puts this in there, and by that we, we understand more of the, the, the broader picture that Matthew is drawing for us. If you remember, the fig tree was that nation which Christ came to looking for fruit, and it was found barren. It was that, he says, um, if, you, if you recall the final words of Christ there, truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And here he speaks of this mountain, that is, this mountain of Jerusalem, this, um, this people of God, as it were, that were merely a shell. They were, they were a leaf, or I'm sorry, a tree fully leafed without any fruit. He came to them, as it were, hungry, and he found no fruit in them. And this people will be taken away and judged. 
And so Jesus is dealing here with that transition. And then we come to verse 23 of Matthew chapter 21. Read with me, if you will. And when he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. As we consider then our our text, verses 23 through 27, and and perhaps if we we get there, we we will continue on to the parable of the two sons. But looking primarily at these verses, starting in 23, I want us to notice the context for Jesus, for the Pharisees questioning Jesus. Jesus is in his temple. The Christ is in his temple. And what is he doing? He's preaching. He's preaching the word of God. Now I want to, I want to help you see the irony of this scene. This is the first, the first point. To set the context, we need to understand the, the picture here is one of deep irony. What is the temple? If you think back about it, the temple which Jesus was standing in here was the temple that was rebuilt, modeled off of that great temple of Solomon. That temple was a temple that was modeled off of the tabernacle. The tabernacle given from the picture on the mountain to Moses. And this picture in many ways resembled Eden, did it not? We remember the tabernacle with its, with its sculptings of Cherubim guarding the Holy of Holies and pomegranates and the tree of the menorah and the washings and all of the ceremony around the tabernacle picturing the presence of God that had been with His people in the Garden of Eden and how that access to God had been protected, guarded, how the people had been kept out through the cherubim. So if you think about redemption history flowing from the Garden of Eden, the Garden being this this point at which God's presence was there, where God walked with His people in the Garden, where the streams flowed out from it to the east and the west. That is, it was a high point. And in the center of this high point stood two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. That is, these pictures or these tokens were pictures of God's Word revealed of blessing to be given within God's will and and cursing outside of God's will. And when Adam and Eve fell, God had sent them out of the garden. And it wasn't, we were not to have a picture so clear until that tabernacle is built which pictures it. And then Solomon comes, David really wants to build a house for the Lord, and David pictures sort of the, the culmination of the righteous king, the suffering servant. But really the pinnacle of that is the son of David. It is Solomon who builds the temple. And it's elaborate nature, the descriptions of which we can read and be astounded even today as we speak of them. 
But what? That temp temple was destroyed. And when God called the people back out of their, um, out of their foreign lands that they had been brought to, and to which he had scattered them, they rebuilt a temple, and that temple was a mere shadow of the one that Solomon had built. And so Christ now, coming all the way back to our text, Christ has come to earth. The God-man has come and dwelt among men. He has tabernacled with man. And he has set his face now towards Jerusalem. The Lord has come to his temple. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord. But what? But who shall endure the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? He shall be like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And so we see Christ doing this, purifying the temple, picturing that, that purification which he would do for his people to purify a people of God. And so now as he comes to this very temple, we should think that there is nothing more fitting than that Christ would stand in the temple on Jerusalem and speak the word of God. This has always been what the temple was. If the temple was to be a place where God's word was revealed, this is the word of God incarnate. This is Jesus in the temple revealing his word to his people. How fitting. How fitting it is for Christ to be there. And yet what? Here comes comes the chief priests and the elders, and they're confronting him. They're questioning him. They're demanding an answer. What right do you have to be here? By what authority do you do these things? Do you get the irony of the scene? You could think of, uh, I, I don't, this analogy came to my mind, maybe it's helpful, but you could think of something that there is much preparation for. Think of maybe when the Olympics come, all the arenas and the, the workout gyms and the, um, and the buildings, the stadiums, the hotels, all the infrastructure that has to be built so that the athletes would come and compete for a time. Think of those athletes then coming and you know they're beginning to, to pump the iron, they're beginning to run on the track or swim in the pool, they're beginning to practice and, and the custodian of the place comes in and says, what are you guys doing here? What authority do you have to come? Well, maybe on a much grander scale, it's something like that. The chief priests and the elders were the custodians of God's, of God's um, stage where he was going to reveal himself. And yet they confront the Christ in his temple and say, by what authority do you have to do these things? What authority? What are you doing here, Jesus? This is the question they ask. Such irony. The Christ is confronted in his temple. And yet, how we question his authority in much the same way. Is not the world the Lord's temple in some way? Is not all of creation meant to display the glory of God, the, the stage of redemption. And yet we take the things that God has given us and many times we, we challenge Him. We say, we do this in our hearts. We do this in the house of the Lord. We ask, Jesus, do you really have a right to do this to your people? To, to cause such an upset in our life together? To cause such difficulties? Is this really what you have a right to do, Jesus? Or we do this in our, in our own lives. We think of, think of those things which you particularly find glory and happiness in, right? When times are going well, when the children are happy, when the chores are done. Isn't it those times that when Christ, when God providentially interrupts them and, 
and puts on display something, he, he tests you. Those are the times that we grumble and murmur in our hearts. And it, as we were, we put the judge, we put ourselves in the judge's seat. We ask Christ, what, what right do you have to come in and do these things? Think of the irony of sin. The murmuring heart. The joyless Christian. The angry father. The careless mother. The indifferent grandparent. The false teacher. The lazy workman. The hateful lover. The reckless caretaker. The faithless brother. The heartless sister. Is not sin profoundly corrupting and ironic? God created a world. He created a place for something. And sin is exceedingly sinful. We ask God, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you take my joys from me? By what authority do you waltz into our church and upset things? By what authority? I would ask you, if you've been in a habit, not of learning from Jesus this week, but confronting him. Have you come to him, perhaps, with the attitude of Christ, what authority do you have to do these things in my life? What authority? But now we'll see that Christ, Christ has the authority to do what he pleases, and more particularly, he sets the terms for his own revelation. This is what we will see next in our text. As the chief priests came in and they challenged Jesus by what authority, and Jesus returns and asks them a question, Jesus sets the table for his own revelation. He's the one that determines how he will be shown to be the Christ. That is, Pharisees, you don't have the right. It's really by what authority do you have, Pharisees? Read in verse 24. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now, as Jesus asks these questions, I want to to step back and notice something about this text. There seems to be a lot of uh, terms being, or I'm sorry, a lot of uses of the word authority going back and forth. Jesus, what authority do you have? And Jesus comes back, well, what authority did John have? And the question I have for you today, did either of these groups really not understand Jesus' authority? I, I put to you, no. They understood what was going on, but actually they rejected this authority. This is more a passage about rejection of authority than it is really what authority is going on here. The disciples, or I'm sorry, the, the chief priests knew in their hearts what the right answers were, but they were not willing to give them. This passage, though it might seem like the main argument is, okay, whose authority does Jesus wield, or by what authority does Jesus do these things, cleansing the temple? I would I propose to you that all through Matthew, we have been hammering on this point, the authority of Christ. Remember, the disciples were amazed at the authority with which he taught, the authority of wind and waves, the authority to heal diseases, the authority to do all the miracles which Jesus done, truly the authority of Christ has been established and yet the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees, they come to him again and they demand, by what authority do you come and do these things, Jesus? And so in some ways the passage 
that we're looking at is really quite unfulfilling. We think, okay, so there's a question asked, but there's no answer given, if you notice that. What answer is given? Jesus says, if you, if you, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. They don't answer his, and neither does Jesus answer theirs. And the passage is ended there, at least until we go on to the next, the next parable. But that can be quite unfulfilling, quite unsatisfying. What's, what's the point of this? But I think Jesus would have us to know that when we come questioning him like this, in spite of much revelation, our hearts are closed when our mouths are opened towards him. Is this not what the chief priests are doing? Jesus is preaching, but can you hear what he says? No, the author doesn't record what Jesus is saying. I want to know what Jesus is saying. But we can't hear that, can we? Because the priests, the elders, are questioning Jesus. What authority do you have, Jesus? And so, we see that Jesus sets the terms of his revelation. And when he does this, he asks them about the baptism of John. Now, it's interesting that he points them back to John. Why does he, why does he do this? Well, if you, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 3 with me and, and look, you'll remember the interaction that they had at this point. In John chapter 3 and verse 7, He's talking about John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Why does Jesus refer them back to John's baptism and the authority there? Well, I think at least one answer to this question is to say, look, you have been on this path from the beginning. Remember, they came to John's baptism not because they were repentant for their sins, not because they were looking for a Messiah, but because they were going with the crowds. They wanted the people's eyes to be pleased with them. They wanted to have that external show of goodness. And John turns them away and says, you brood of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, you ought to be expecting Christ to come, Christ to pay the penalty for your sin. But you're coming on your own righteousness. You're coming in show. You're a walking counterfeit. You're a walking contradiction. And so, from the very beginning, before Jesus was even a name, they were unwilling to repent, to humble themselves, to bear fruit. They were not anticipating the coming Christ. You had no need for a Savior. You put on an external show and going to John, but you were denied because you were walking in a life that was in contradiction with the Gospel and the very message that you were to be stewards of. You had more fear in your heart toward the people than you did toward God for your sin. And so by pointing them back, he says, look, you've been on this track the whole time. If you were unwilling to deal with John, you're not really here honestly to deal with me either, are you? 
And we see this is the case. We know they are here to confront Jesus, not to learn, not to listen to his preaching, but to demand an answer from the Christ, the Son of God, in his temple, revealing his name to his people. So what? Christ is his own revealer. He sets the context for his own revelation. Do you want to know who Jesus is? You cannot demand that Jesus answer you on your terms based on your settings and what you think Jesus is. You must come to Jesus as he has revealed himself in his word. Through the history that he has laid out, through the times and the seasons that he has given for you to see him in. It's a matter of where your heart is and whom you are most beholden to. When you approach the Scriptures, when you come to the Lord's table, when you gather together, it's a matter of your, of your heart. Have you come this morning to confront Jesus, to demand answers from Jesus? Or have you come to put your heart under Him, to say, Lord, I want to know You. I don't want to answer You the way... My circumstances demand you be answered. I want to know you the way you are showing yourself to be, truly. In James we read, the Lord, what? Resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Is this not what we see Jesus doing here? As these proud Pharisees come, they demand an answer, but Jesus resists them, He shows them they must be humble as you come to Christ. He sets the bounds of your life. You know, we we inevitably come to Him, whether it's in our daily reading or in our worship together corporately or in our however it is that we come to to learn about Christ, inevitably we bring with us our, our contexts and our baggage. But God has a claim, God has an authority over those things. And we cannot demand that God answer the question that we think is most impending upon us. I need an answer to this today. But His Word is often telling you to ask a different question. When we read, we ask, what is the question that you would have me to be asking of your Word? How would I understand you better through your Word? When I come to your house, what is that thing which I ought to be learning, Jesus? We see from this passage that the Bible and God's revelation is often silent when our mouths are open and our hearts are shut. But here, we also understand the deliberate nature of their ignorance. And so we saw, we saw first that, that Jesus came to his temple. We saw the irony of confronting Jesus and questioning his authority. We saw that Jesus sets his own terms for his own revelation. But in this we see the, the, uh, the deliberate nature of the ignorance of these men. Look now as they discuss among themselves. Saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
You see, the chief priests had made a calculated decision. A calculated decision to hedge against the probing word of God. They knew what the answer was. They knew that it would confront them. They knew it would demand of them the question, why then did you not believe? And therefore, they calculated, they chose within their heart to play politics with God. If you imagine yourself uh, in the middle of the beginnings of a heart attack, and as, as you feel the pain and tightness in your chest and your, your arm is restricting, the, uh, the cardiologist comes to you and says, is everything all right? And you choose to say, yeah, everything's fine. You've made a calculated decision to hide from the one who could heal. And this is not what the chief priests are doing over and over again. As Jesus asks them this question, what could they have said? They could have said the truth. We know that the baptism of John was from God. And Jesus could have said, why then did you not believe? And perhaps salvation might have come to them that day. Perhaps God would have been more fully revealed to them on that occasion. Yet they hardened their hearts before God, before his probing light. They deliberately hid their symptoms from the great physician. Again, how do often we do this same thing, do we not? We harbor that. We know, we know there, is, there is sin. We know we need to confess to the Lord, and we just... We just can't find a way. And so as we pray, we pray all around the issue. As we, as we come together, we dodge the issue. Rather than letting the rays of light from God's word and from his people shine where it needs to shine. To put ourselves low that he might lift us up. To probe where we need to have things revealed. Think. The question, when someone asks you, perhaps even today after the service, how are things going? And I am guilty as more so than anyone here. How are things going? Good. They're going good. Fine. Yeah, they're fine. It's not so much the question. The question is innocent, but it's the context of the question. Are we not here together with the Lord's people? Are we not called together to be holy? And when your brother or your sister asks you, how are things going? How quickly we say, fine. Fine. The Lord's assembled saints called to holiness, gathered to worship. Are you weak? Are you wounded? Are you sick? Are you sore? Jesus, ready, stands to save you. He does. And are we looking then to give Jesus to one another in this context, in the Lord's house? Are we we looking to shine the light of God into the hearts of one another that we might have a better understanding of Jesus, that we might be drawn to humble ourselves and confess to one another, look, I struggled this week because I ought to be a faithful workman and I I wasn't. Or because I ought to be a, a parent. Honestly, it was a difficult week of parenting. You know, a li- just a little glimpse like that ought to be taken and we can say, brother, sister, Jesus is a savior for the weak parents. 
He's a kind and merciful Savior for the conflicted at heart, for the sore. We, we could take opportunity to do these things, to point one another to the, to the saving gift of Jesus, that he was weak for us, and that he deals gently with our infirmities. We see the deliberate nature of ignorance then, don't we? We see the deliberate nature. We, sometimes we truly are, if you will, ignorant of what truth ought to be done, but we are not really innocent, are we? Because we turn away. We turn away from the means that God has chosen to convict us and to reveal His truth to us. Are you doing this this morning in the ways that God has given you, the means that He has put in front of you for now? Are you turning away and deliberately choosing ignorance? Notice then this bondage and futility of pleasing men. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to, isn't it? And I can raise my hand there as well. When someone asks that question, or when you read in the Scriptures and it it probes in a place you're not comfortable with, does it not ultimately come down to that? I'd rather not look like a bad parent in front of my other friends. I'd rather not look like I'm struggling the way I am because it looks like your life is so put together. (laughs) But it's not, is it? Would we put on a facade of self-righteousness or would we humble ourselves to one another? It's really, truly a sad state when we've deliberately chosen to live in darkness. Have you ever tried to, tried to please an obstinate child? One that just will not be, be tamed, right? No matter what you offer. How about this? Well, how about this? Well, how about this? And it's nothing. Nothing seems to probe. Nothing seems to penetrate. And as parents, it's in that moment we realize, you know what? This child is making a choice. It's not so much that the child has a need. It's as much as the child is choosing what is wrong. Now, sometimes we understand the weakness of the child. It hasn't slept well in two days. You just need sleep. And so we put the child in bed. But sometimes there's more correction that needs to be done. But in either way, we understand a little bit of this deliberate nature to live in sin when we look at this child. Do you chase friendships with people over your faith in God? Or do you, do you turn away from a better knowledge of sin and a better knowledge of your Savior for the fear of losing the respect of your coworkers or the big names in your life? It was the fear of man that took these Pharisees, these chief priests and elders, and brought them to a place where they had no light. But what does James say? But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. And so I want you to notice then, in verse 28, as it continues on, Jesus did not stop there. Though he had no reason to continue, the Pharisees had no claim over him. He truly was the one with authority here. What does Jesus then say? He puts it to them. He says, What do you think? A man had two sons. 
And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now what is Jesus doing here? He puts to them a question that they cannot refuse to answer. He takes and he makes them the, uh, the arbiters. He says, you want to be the judge? He puts them in that seat because he's going to ask them a question about what is right. What do you think? So he sets them up in this conversation. Okay, you're the one that knows righteousness. What do you think? Who does right in this situation? And he paints a picture of two sons. The one son says, the first one says, no, I won't do your will. But then later he repents and he goes and does the father's will. The second son, absolutely, I'll do your will, father. And he doesn't do it. Which son, which son did the will of the father? The elders jump onto that. They say, oh, we, we can answer that question, clearly. It's the one who did the will, right? The first son. And then what does Jesus do? He, he turns that on them. He says, okay, so you have answered, but you have answered yourself as well. How so? How's, what's that connection like? Well, he's answered in this way. He's pressing precisely on the, the difficulty of the Jewish people at this time. It's the nerve of the Jewish problem. See, they're quite open to the idea of the miraculous, but quite resistant to the notion of need. God has given us His law, His temple, and His covenant. I'm already the favored son. What more do I need? But they forget that they need the son who does the will of the Father. You see, At the baptism of John, many came, many prostitutes, many tax collectors came and they knew their sinfulness and they repented before God. And in so repenting, their face was turned towards Christ. What did John do when he would baptize them? He said, one is coming greater than I. That is, this baptism was a very, uh, was a baptism expecting a Messiah. So every person that came repenting and confessing their sins, John took their face and said, look, the Messiah is coming for sinners like you. But when the Pharisees declined to see their own sin, declined to repent, they also declined to have their face turned toward Jesus. And so in their, in their state, they did not reckon to see that they are not like the Son who does the will of the Father. They are like the Son who says, yes, I'll do it. And it's external show and there's no internal obedience. No internal obedience. And so, as we think of this then, what is, what is Christ doing? What is He showing them? 
Well, he's rendering this preliminary diagnosis. It's a diagnosis they can't possibly ignore. The Pharisee, the self-righteous, the hypocrite, is worse off than the sinner, than the prostitute, than the tax collector. To do the will of the Father, one cannot just intend to obey. God does not just accept your intent. He doesn't. This is, we must reckon with the fact that God does not merely accept our intent to obey. What does He accept? Obedience. Obedience. And yet, do we obey? Can we trust our own obedience? Do we have a need for a Savior? Because this is the need that these chief priests did not have. Why why was Christ questioned to such an extent? They had no place for a Messiah in the temple. They thought the temple was a pinnacle to themselves. It's a pinnacle of what we have. Don't we have the law? Don't we have the miracles? Don't we have the history of the nation? Don't we have, don't we have, don't we have? And so when the Messiah comes, they say, we have no need. We have no need. By what authority are you here? but was it not all meant to show you what you don't have? What you don't have? You are not keepers of the law. You die in the law. You are not keepers of God's goodness. You've died in that righteousness. God reveals perfectly what He demands, but you have no hope in that. Where is your hope then? Your hope is in one who does the will of the Father who does the will of the Father. If you have refused to do what is commanded, you must repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But not that the fruit in keeping with repentance is a second chance at the law. You must try again. Remember, they were pointed, their face was pointed towards the Messiah coming. They must repent and believe the one who does the will of the Father. Given who Jesus says is entering the kingdom, we can see this. We really don't know much about the harlots or the tax collectors. It does not say, and after having been baptized, the harlots never sinned and the tax collectors were perfect. It says the tax collectors and the harlots enter, were entering the kingdom of God before the self-righteous. On what basis? On what basis do harlots and tax collectors enter the kingdom of God? On the basis of Christ's righteousness alone on the basis of the one who stands in the temple preaching, on the basis of the forgiveness of sins offered freely in the gospel to those who would come in faith and in repentance. This is the basis that Christ comes. In so doing then, we must realize that we need our faces turned toward the cross just as Jesus had his face fixed on that Penalty for sin that he was coming to pay. See, the Jews, or at least the elders in this case, were primarily focused on their temple, on their power, on the, on the eyes of men upon them, on the people. And Jesus had his eyes fixed towards his death, towards that salvation which he would provide. And how we must have our face turned towards that aspect as well. 
It was on a particular hill at a particular time in history that a particularly humble king was nailed for your sin. He came in that context to reveal to you your need for a Savior. Would you question him in his temple? Would you say, Jesus, what authority do you have to call us helpless sinners? What authority do you have to tell us how to worship? What authority do you have, Jesus? Or would you look and say, truly, thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Truly, you were condemned for us. In the world, in the workplace, in our homes, in our gardens, in the Lord's house, do we set our face toward the cross or do we set our face against Christ? Do we set our face against Him, confronting Him, His providence, His revelation? How do we set our face then towards the cross? How do we do this? How do we respond in thankfulness to the message of the cross? Well, the first thing that I, I have written down for my own heart is that we would open ourselves in thankfulness to God. You know, the heart of thankfulness for what Christ has done can penetrate much in our obstinance and in our resistance to God. As we struggle with frustration and anxiety, if we would take a moment to consider the lilies and consider the birds, we might have a thankful heart toward the Lord. And in letting a a ray of light shine into our hearts, then we might say, Lord, let me not confront Jesus, for surely you own me as a son. You are my father. And so we might ask the Lord, seek him and knock, plead that he would reveal himself to us, that we might know him better, that we would not challenge him, that we might acknowledge that he is his own revealer, that we might ask the questions that he would have us to ask rather than the ones that we're demanding from him. And then what? We must trust the mercy of the Father. We must consciously reject the fear of man, reject the prestige that we think we need. We must do what God has set in front of us to do. What providence has God set in your life? A difficult work situation? A difficult family situation? A challenging health? A challenging time at whatever organization or predicament you find yourself in? God has set you in that time, in that moment, that you might trust Him. That you might trust Him with it. That you might steward the grace of God. Why were the Jews in Jerusalem with the temple at the time of Passover so that God could come to them, could reveal their own sinfulness, could point them to a Savior, and could show them who He was? 
It was the context for his revelation. And this is what the whole world is. Many have likened it to a, to a stage where God is performing his, his own revelation. And we are but actors on his stage. And so often we reject the very thing which God is pointing us toward. Like a chief priest in the temple rejecting the Messiah. We need to say, Lord, this situation is put in front of me, not so that I can demand answers of you, but that so I can ask, what would you have of me? What is faithfulness, Lord? I know because of Christ that I am a sinner, and I have sinned in this situation, but I know because of Christ you have redeemed me in spite of situations like this. Therefore, Lord, help me. Lord, show me that I might worship you in my heart and in my soul. And if you have not, if you have not come to Christ in this way and said, I cast all my anxiety, all my sin, all my failing to do what is righteous and holy, I cast that all upon a Savior. If you have not repented and had your face turned, as it were, to Christ, do so. This is what John was calling people to do in the waters. He said, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Truly, the new creation of Christ has entered into this world. The kingdom of God is here and is coming. Repent and believe the gospel. Come to Christ that you might find him to be a merciful Savior. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which you sovereignly ordained that these learned men would come and confront you in your temple. That we might see the futility of confronting Christ and challenging his authority and demanding of him answers rather than learning from his preaching and seeing what he is revealing through his word and knowing him to be a savior. Lord, may we not shut up our hearts in this way. May we not hide in deliberate ignorance. But Lord, may we conform to the way that you have revealed yourself to be. May we worship you in the way that you have called us to worship. May we love you because you first loved us and gave your Son for us. And Lord, as we look even to this context, we see the wisdom with which you answered these men. We see the, the way in which you showed that your authority was far above and beyond any that could even be challenged. And yet with such gentleness, in the times of our resistance and our scorning, you give more grace. May we humble ourselves before you as we turn and look to the table, I pray in your name. Amen.